0: Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast.
1: Right. Good evening, everyone. And uh, welcome to an in-person event um, jointly hosted by the Centre for Development Studies. uh, And our director, Michael Bloomfield, is there in the fourth row and uh, the Institute for Policy Research. And uh, I'm James Copestake, and um, I'm delighted to welcome our speaker uh, this evening, uh, Michael Woolcock. Um, who, for many of you will know, need no introduction. but for those who do, he's lead social scientist uh, in the development research group at the World Bank, where you've survived now nearly twenty five years, which is quite an achievement, um, uh, particularly as a sociologist who is mostly working with economists. And so Michael's kind of uniquely positioned to comment as a an insider into uh, our topic, which is the changing face of development cooperation. And Michael does also take time out to go and teach at the Kennedy School um, at um, Harvard uh, and to reflect. And is the author, I think, more than a dozen books, and more than 100 papers. So the academic side of your work is also impressive. Uh, And Michael is not a stranger to Bath. Um, I think the first time you came was to talk about Development Impact Trajectories and the paper that appeared in the first edition of the Journal of Development Effectiveness about um, not just studying development in one period of time. And then the second time you came was when you were um, fresh off the back of the book on problem-driven iterative adaptation, uh, rethinking state capability with Lamp-Richard and others. And then the third time, which is particularly memorable for me, was in the middle of lockdown, and you um, uh, you were fresh out of being one of the authors of the um, poverty and prosperity report um, of the World Bank, which I guess acquired the the the, um, uh, the sub clause um, uh, reversals of fortune because it was in the middle of of COVID, uh, and that of course was online. So it's a particular pleasure to. Um, welcome you again um, to uh, uh, to talk in person. Um, I should say that pro bono Michael is also supervising one of our doctoral students in the IPR, uh, one of the doctoral students in development policy research and practice, who I want to mention because he's almost certainly listening um, <laughs> online from Belize, um, fresh from having just survived Hurricane Alice. So welcome Sean and everybody else who is online and we'll um, do use the chat function Uh, And we'll endeavour to make sure, um, or Laura will endeavour to to make sure that some of your questions get fielded um, in the course of the seminar. Um, Michael is a polymath, and you ought to do some warm-ups now if you haven't heard him speak, because it will get faster and faster and faster um, as it proceeds. And and so um, for 45 minutes or so, in order to leave as much time for uh, question and answer and to open it up. So uh, you will be recorded if you ask questions and we will pass around a microphone because we want to share this this talk as widely as possible with others. So just be aware of that, that you will go on YouTube or um, uh, if you you engage, which is great. And I think that's everything I need to say. Um, So welcome, Michael, and over to you. Thank you very much.
2: Good evening thanks so much for inviting me back into into your world and for those around the world who are listening in uh, thanks to you as well for giving up whatever else you might have been doing to be part of this conversation uh, as advertised my my talk is about the changing face of international development cooperation with a, a pitch that i'm going to be talking about a forthcoming book that i have done which i will but i'll do that in the second half more of what i'm going to say tonight what i'm going to do, weave into, a, into, I hope, is a, a coherent narrative, <laughs> uh, starts with a, a project I've just finished with uh, a scholar in international relations, JP Singh, at the George Mason University. Uh, <clears throat> he and I were given a mandate a few years ago by the World Bank to try and look at the future of multilateralism uh, as the World Bank approached its 75th anniversary, and uh in the research department we didn't want that moment to be left to the marketing machinery that would want to tell wonderful happy stories about how great the world bank was at 75 uh researchers engage with questions critically and so our, we were asked to uh, outline a, a course of research that might help to not just engage with critical reflections on multilateralism at multiple units of analysis uh but to do what we urge our Kennedy School students to do, which is to match critique with a response. And it's not in the the policy school space, uh, that's obligatory almost. (laughs) Uh, The critique is uh, is relatively familiar as an activity for researchers and scholars more generally, but uh, less familiar and less uh, often undertaken is the challenge of providing a response that is intellectually sound, politically supportable and administratively implementable and when we review our (coughs) master's thesis at the Kennedy School those are the three sort of criteria around which we assess what they do does it make sense intellectually does does the evidence do what it's supposed to do to support your argument is that map onto a, a broad enough political constituency that would support what you're trying to argue for And is it sufficiently implementable by the administrative apparatus whose job it would be to actually do what you're claiming it could do. And when you look, when we looked at the prevailing literature over the last five or six years or so, which is uh, around the 75th anniversary of the multi of the Bretton Woods institutions, there was plenty of research there calling for all sorts of sweeping reforms of one kind or another. Uh, Close down this change this uh, rewrite the whole international aid architecture. but very little on what actually might need to be done and who actually was gonna support this, who was gonna pay for it, uh, who was gonna implement it. And there people seemed to stop. And so for this particular project that, that JP and I and our collaborators uh, did, we tried to not only do the critique work, but then try and provide a set of uh, responses. And they were required to do so as part of admission to this project, when you're making your pitch to us about why we should include you uh, as a result of an open call for papers, uh, this, this tripartite lens of soundness, supportability, and implementability was the criteria against which we ended up with 14 substantive papers and four commentaries by seasoned people at the nexus of, of uh, policy and practice who's, uh, and research, whose role then was to, make, in some sense, make live assessments of the extent to which we as editors had done the job of Uh, providing responses to that so i'm going to not go into all the 14 papers i'm just going to give you a a sense of the kind of uh, work that we were trying to do but i guess if there's a an overarching set of questions that holds together what i'm going to say in the first part of my remarks and in the second part of my remarks i think the overarching question is what is the development problem for which we need multilateral institutions and uh, apropos a talk I gave uh, last night at the, at IDS, you know, Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex, what kinds of uh, civic solidarities do we need in order for those kinds of uh, problems to be resolved? And I, that's, I, that's what I want to talk about here tonight. Is not just the, the changing face in, in terms of uh, what is already going on, but what when we look further into the future, what kinds of challenges do we think need to be addressed? And if those, what for what purpose, then, should we be trying to rethink some of our multilateral institutions and what kinds of civic support and legitimacy will need to be accorded to those reforms in order for them themselves to do the work that we think they need to do. That, in fact, is uh, then in in, in a more general format, the the subject of of the the book that's coming out, uh, maybe next month, maybe in time for Christmas, (laughs) uh, or more likely in early uh, January. Uh, where the subtitle of of the book is, uh, well, International Development, the subtitle is uh, Navigating Humanity's Greatest Challenge. And the sort of slight deception or play on words I go with there is that international development itself isn't humanity's greatest challenge. Navigating all the problems that development creates uh, and, and the sum of the solutions that it generates is what, is what has always been humanity's greatest challenge from the beginning. <laughs> uh, how do we all get along with each other? How do we work together in a world uh, where we are now bound together through all the well understood or at least familiar patterns of globalization? But if development by its very definition is about changing things, about trying to move people out of prosperity, about trying to create a more equitable and just world, Uh, that's going to change the entire planet if we actually succeed, let alone if we fail. And yet succeeding generates its own need to reconfigure how we all get along with each other. And from the beginnings of all the sacred religious traditions of the world, from from philosophy, as many times as it's been articulated across the across history and across different groups around the world, those have always been the wrenching questions for which there won't ever be an answer as such, only a generational moment each time to try and figure out how to get along with each other uh, as the prevailing set of challenges presents themselves and the thesis of the book is essentially the development whether it succeeds or it fails messes with all of that it messes with our mechanisms for engaging with each other whether it be through trade whether it be through communication uh, whether it be through uh, learning different or engaging with very different understandings of uh, how healthcare should be practiced, how agriculture should be conducted, uh, developments has this very vainglorious presumption that we know how to do all those things, that human reason and resources can deliver on all those things. And the thesis of the book is, yeah, that's true. Uh, but when you rapidly urbanize a country and uh, turn a world in which seventy farmers were used historically needed to feed 100 people to a world in which uh, through productivity gains, which is economic growth, which is what drives so much of poverty reduction, you end up in a world where only three people (laughs) are needed to feed 100 people. That's 67 farmers that have to completely reimagine their life and learn a whole set of new skills, reside in a different place, commune with different people, interact with a more diverse group of people, and do all the things that uh, make have always made uh, humans uh, afraid of one another, uh, difficult to get along with each other, and with uh, needing to find new places, spaces, and vocabulary for interacting with each other. And so that's the sort of <laughs> it's the merger of those two different uh, streams of work, as it were, that I've been engaged in over the past several years. That I want to try and bring together, just in brief form here today. But most of what I'm ultimately trying to do, I think, is. And when I'm teaching or doing any, any public uh, conversing like this is to elicit interesting questions uh, from those people that are at different points, you know, enter the development world through different uh, doors. And the world looks different, uh, Of development looks very different depending which door you enter or receive uh, or engage with this whole thing we call development. So let's just start with this, the, the future of multilateralism and global development, uh, just to give you some of the, the background to that, which I've already given in, in uh, overview form, but our strategy wasn't just to uh, hunt the good and the great the familiar cast of senior international relations scholars who uh, worry about and have articulated many of our definitions of multilateralism, our theories of, de- of multilateralism, and then embodying that in the whole body of international relations scholarship. Uh, we wanted to use this opportunity to diversify the voices that were being heard in this particular space so through an open call made an explicit pitch to not just uh, attract some senior scholars who might want to be part of this uh, but some junior scholars as well uh, and people from many different countries and from many different disciplines engaging with different kinds of sectors Uh, not then pretending that we now had a a random sample, as it were, or even an intentional sample of people from these different sectors, just to embody, I think, the fact that development is now about everything. <laughs> uh, and because it's about everything, we need to do this hard work. We have these hard conversations that are required to try and bring these very different modalities of thinking and doing together. So we made this initial call for papers. We got 55 or so responses. From that, we whittled all those 55 down to 14 on the criteria that I just outlined before. Uh, And then over over a a course of COVID, of course, that's when all this was being done, we arranged an online uh, conference for our contributing authors when they were at the zero draft stage of their work. Solid enough to, to to convey it, but not solid enough to uh, be overly defensive. <laughs> uh, and signed uh, different contributors to be the discussants, so it's a nice mixing and matching of people commenting on others others' work. As I said, I'm not going to dare to uh, overwhelm you, or just in some cases probably bore you with the, with what all these 14 papers are, are going to be about. Uh, let me just use four as as sort of as different kinds of examples of what we were trying to do. What we're not trying to do is have 14 different views on how to change the entire architecture of international development cooperation that would have been uh, a wasted opportunity <laughs> what we wanted to try and do was to have enough papers that were wrestling with the everything from the big shifting uh, geopolitics of the world the, the increasing role of China and, and Russia in, in uh, international relations and how that was going to likely shape uh, the international order and in through in the coming years right and as we speak right down to, to much more prosaic issues, and I am going to start with the prosaic issues because uh I we not just because when you work for these organizations, some of those prosaic issues turn out to be not so prosaic they turn out to be kind of really important for shaping the entire functionality of the organization you work for. So one of the seemingly. Uh, uh that's the right word. <laughs> not so interesting to a lot of people papers that I want to talk about and make you give a bit of a shout-out to actually, was a paper that tries to look at how what what kinds of strategies would it would it take to in- make sure that every country pays its dues to the United Nations. Right? <laughs> uh, it turns out that a huge number of countries do not pay their dues. The formula that is used to calculate how much they need to pay has been well established for many, many decades, everybody knows what that is everybody knows what each other's dues are. Um, But only a handful of countries actually pay their full sum every year right what organization are you a part of for which the membership fees from the development studies association here in the UK, where you would say yeah. I think I'll just pay half this year, just because I can. <laughs> you would think that was outrageous, right? So why is it okay for a bunch of countries, of whether they're big or small, to suddenly decide that their apportioned contribution is negotiable—that we shouldn't have to pay for this? And why should why would how do we avoid, a, in one sense, a typical collective action problem where you can actually get away with not doing this, not paying your dues? But the point of the paper was to show well, there's actually a threshold at which people start to get a little antsy about whether they should or shouldn't pay it and that's whether they're going to lose their vote in the General Assembly right, so if here is the General Assembly line, as it were which you would you well, you never get kicked out, but you'd be threatened with sanctioning if you were there. Um, how can you raise the bar up to there, <laughs> so that would actually mean that the UN wouldn't have to go to Ted Turner, for example, when they want to put a fresh coat of paint on their building is that sexy and cool. Well, it is if you're the budget officer for the United Nations, because you spend your life stressing out about explaining why your organization isn't able to do the things it can't do, when the real reason is not because you haven't got good enough people, it's just that the countries that are supposed to bankroll the organization aren't paying what they're supposed to pay. Why is that controversial? <laughs> <laughs> so they try to lay out a set of uh, uh, seemingly reasonable uh, processes, but would in fact enable countries to be more willing to pay what what the rules are and what they have long known they should be paying and what they have pledged in the international forums to pay and yet abandoned with the pocket with, with with seemingly shameless uh, un- lack of awareness about what the consequences of that actually are so we start at those kinds of levels right and I like that I think if you work for one of these organizations feeling like you're constantly not being respected by the countries that claim to take you or take you seriously it's just one of the elementary bases on which legitimacy for the organization is eroded when people themselves who are part of it don't take it seriously what can we do to fix that we have another series of papers which engraves really interesting questions about openness transparency and accountability right and on one level that's we all most people in this room would think that's a noble aspiration that with the, the activities of the, the World Bank and the data it collects should be all put into the public domain so that everybody can use it and there's there's no secrets about all of this. Right? And uh, students today probably can't even imagine <laughs> what it was like at least when I was in graduate school, where you know, at best you had a CD ROMs worth of data that was probably out of date from a handful of countries, but c- what constituted the global data of the world. Uh, now you can get real-time stuff that's produced uh, in, in scales and of accuracy and granularity that are just were unimaginable so 20, 25 years ago or so right that happens because we have much of a huge big imperatives now to, to make the kind of data that we work and they will use and all the documents that we produce uh, most of those themselves uh, end up in the public domain. We have a nice countervailing. Pushback paper on all of that from a from a group of scholars who say, well, on, at least on certain key issues, maybe we should have more secrecy rather than more transparency. Why might we want that? Well, we saw this in in COVID, right? When there's enormous political pressure to be able to document what state of uh, effectiveness your COVID response uh, strategy has been in. Right, everyone has very powerful pressures under into that under those moments to fake their data, basically to present happy stories because nobody wants to be, be ranked in the league table and shown to be the shame, named and shamed as the country with the least effective COVID strategy in the world. That's what would happen if everybody had to uh, publicly portray all their data around COVID, for example variations on that with poverty as well who wants to be rank ordered in a league table and shown to be the poorest country in the world everybody around that bottom space or countries that are on record as saying we will be a high income country by 2020 enormous political pressure on you to present data that's fulfilling the manifest destiny that your country claims to be on right so maybe for that kind of data it shouldn't be in the in the public domain or at least it should be quarantined for like two or three years or something and then made available to Again, that might sound really arcane if, if you don't work for one of those organizations, but as James mentioned before, I was the co-director of the World Bank's Poverty and Shared Prosperity uh, two years ago. I won't name the countries in question, but they are very large, poor countries in the world who withheld their data because their own uh, national governments didn't wanna be humiliated by the fact that actually their poverty seemed to have gotten worse in the period between when they last submitted their data. Right. And, but when big countries don't submit their poverty data, we, we can't produce regional aggregates, we can't even credibly produce uh, global aggregates when huge big countries don't present their poverty data. Should we make, should we double down on, on transparency in that moment, or should we have an, an agreement that the accurate, we prioritize accuracy over transparency, and in the short run, we really want to give countries the security and confidence they can share their data w- with somebody. Uh, or the, whether it be a World Health Organization or the IMF or the World Bank in ways that enables it to be uh, be regarded by them and by, by the people that then curate it as being fully accurate. So it's a nice, uh, I think, debate around what exactly should we be fully open and transparent about and what when does the politics and the scholarship <clears throat> required to produce all these wonderful sources of data that we now have available to them, when might that actually need it to be protected in some in some very specific kind of way uh, what we also saw was some just really nice uh case studies around judicial innovations that have happened uh that certain international agencies have been able to fund and then uh use those as ways of being able to try and engage with uh climate change reform and labor reform in particular so rather than presuming that we, if we just uh get enough experts in a room and have a normal world a conference of one kind or another that the the wisdom of the of the experts will elicit the right kind of answer where space has been created for a more experimental experimental and iterative approach to be explored that would enable these kinds of lessons to emerge in ways they wouldn't if it was just left to a senior group of people uh, in a nice hotel room somewhere so these are just really interesting examples of where uh, seemingly prosaic sort of issues, whether it be around uh, accuracy of data, around whether people pay their dues, or the degrees of freedom that big Weberian iron cage organizations might have for taking a more adaptive and flexible approach to things, is, is able to convey that in fact <clears throat> there are, the, issue, the issues are more subtle. Uh, there isn't some big fix that would uh, provide a straightforward answer to all of these. What we really require is, the, is more, of the, the more willingness to have the kinds of internal conversations that enable these increasingly contentious, these increasingly non-obvious problems <clears throat> to find solutions. And I think this kind of uh, study is doing that kind of work when it's able to provide both the critique of the existing system, but also uh, provide sound, supportable, and implementable solutions in response to that. Nari Woods does a nice concluding chapter where she indeed addresses all these big questions around emerging global global political economy questions around which countries drive all these agendas uh, and and others another really interesting intra uh, organizational uh, set of uh, critiques is around the staff that work for international agencies right and has long been a, a cause in principle for diversifying the, the the staff that work for multilateral agencies for the World Bank and the IMF in particular uh, so as uh, and diversifying both demographically around uh, the gender of the staff and, and but also uh, geographically, geographically where they come from and then ideologically and there's some kind of places in which they've been trained or the kinds of skills and sensibilities that they might bring to bear. Uh, So we have a nice, uh, pretty unique study, actually, that's been able to get hold of the human resource data of both the IMF and the World Bank and look over time at how those have changed in response to public pledges by both organizations to, in fact, become more diverse and to, quote, sort of look like the world in which they engage. Uh, You might be somewhat surprised to learn that the IMF is actually the more advanced on that path. (laughs) uh, If you're... The stereotype, uh, which is not more than a stereotype, it's a, a fact of well Bank of IMF stuff, is there a sort of three-piece suit wearing people that uh, show up at meetings looking pretty similar to each other, when no matter uh, where they came from or uh, what they pract- what they actually do for a living. Uh, but it turns out, at least empirically, when you study this and look at it over a 20-year time frame, it's the IMF that's become the more uh, intentional and ex- and uh, proactive in terms of responding to its own the calls that have been put upon it to try and make itself more more and more diverse so is that the changing face of, of multi of multilateralism or development banks well, maybe it's the changing inner workings <laughs> the face is, is the outward looking part of it and maybe most that's all that most people see but I think well, what we were trying to do with this with these with an, at least with uh, 11 or so of the papers was to try and look more at the internal workings because that's really where the engine is that's where the work is done uh, and that's where uh, some of the most consequential changes, in fact, can be made, given that I, I think it's just not realistic almost to, to talk always about the big wholesale changes that are required. Uh, I don't think that's what we need. I think We are all in agreement, I think, that especially as a result of COVID, that we're in a world where global problems require global solutions. That's not just a cliche. I think that's actually fact. <laughs> uh, and as we were talking again yesterday at, at RDS... The, the question isn't whether whether we need multilateral approaches, whether we need global responses to these kinds of global challenges it's what what kinds of problems are they and what kinds of organizational configurations do we need to do that kind of work? Now, on that question then I want to transition to the second part where I'm going to be in some sense calling upon the book that I've uh, that I have forthcoming but also just other, issues that we address more explicitly in another book that I just did and launched it at LSE on Monday uh, called New Mediums, Better Messages, which is engaging, as uh, as my co-editors and I did uh, eight years ago on an earlier book, around the ways in which uh, the more popular vernacular of development issues is experienced and conveyed. Most people who are you know, the proverbial person in the street who is asked to, for their views on international development, doesn't get it because they wake up at stay up at night reading the quarterly journal of economics they don't get it because they read a nice glossy UN report Uh, they live on a diet mostly informed by popular representations of development and they they uh, imbibe all of that material as a basis on which public opinion is informed so part of this particular project was trying to look at the very different ways in which development is conveyed and I'll come back to that as I move forward but what I want to do in this part is just open with two vignettes that I think to me demonstrate the kinds of problems that are unique to the, they're, they're, they're in, enhanced and intensified in the 21st century, but in which I think are consistent with what I said at the beginning about the fact that the hardest problems that humans have always faced are the ones that have been about how we work together, how we resolve our differences. And I want to provide just a A basic framework for thinking about some of those differences but to elicit and uh, exemplify those I want to talk about I just want to present two brief cases as it were vignettes is probably the more accurate the first comes from a meeting that I was at in in Canada a few months ago Uh, I was invited there uh, because of the work I've done in in mixed methods in trying to uh, integrate and uh, reconcile some of the different logics and imperatives of qualitative and quantitative methods but the actual purpose of this meeting was uh, to try and figure out how the Canadian government could allocate $26 billion that it had created and allocated as part of a uh, reparations uh, response to how it had treated its First Nations people. And this $26 billion was now to be spent on child and, wealth, child and family welfare services in First Nations communities. And the, this three day meeting was all about how do we do that? How exactly do we reconcile the imperatives of a state that is in a pretty normal functioning government that has all a raft of administrative laws and principles and procedures and that surround it. With this very particular existential sacred space called child and family welfare, where there's not just a singular First Nations understanding of what is a legitimate and, and normal set of practices regarding how you raise children but a whole array of different first nations views around all of this so if you're familiar with uh, the wonderful book seeing like a state by James scott and the subsequent writings that he has done he makes just for juxtapositional purposes a, a very powerful distinction between vernacular order and official order vernacular order is the, the umwelt and use the german word they're the life world in which people live and in which they make sense of their world and which they then um, uh, communicate with each other and, and uh, engage in very particular sets of conversations that are normal and normative for those particular communities. That particular vernacular order, uh, and as Scott very powerfully conveys in his book, has to somehow talk to official order, the world of log frames, the world of administrative law, the world of, of budgets, the world of procurement, uh, the world of evaluation. And those are very, very different kinds of worlds. And this particular meeting was magic because for once <laughs> you had 20 people in a room who weren't grandstanding, who weren't trying to say so they were the smartest person in the room. who wasn't trying to say that my methodology is better than your methodology and all the usual uh, antics that and performative antics that uh, certain types are, want to engage in, shall we say. <laughs> this was a group of people that have actually been meeting for several times over many years. They all knew each other pretty well. But you can tell as the conversation started to unfold, this is going to be a really hard conversation to have, because these are entirely different logics trying to talk to each other. Right. And we're talking family and child family welfare. The reason we have reparations even on the table at all, it justifies the 26 billion is that for the most much of the previous hundred years, that has itself been the problem. The Canadian government took kids away from their parents, put them in boarding schools or in convents or in uh housing of one kind or another to completely change their identity their religion and their loyalties and their first nations people are very comfortable saying in a public meeting like the one i was in the last time you guys tried to do this things kind of didn't work out so well so let's try and figure out how to make this work this time <laughs> being very reasonable but you can sense the anger and that's boiling beneath the surface about what we're trying to do here right the beauty and power of this meeting when <laughs> you could have the Dean of the School of Social Work at the University of Montreal give a beautiful speech about what it's like trying to teach generations of social workers to do the work of going into people's families, looking around doing what professional social workers do and starting in certain cases, a line has been crossed It's my job to take you away from your children, make them wards of the state. And put them in foster homes because I declare that you are not fit to be an able parent in this situation. Who wants to do that job who thinks it's prestigious to drop that into a conversation when you're sitting next to a stranger on an airplane when they ask, now oh, so what do you do. I go into Saskatchewan in the middle of February in the middle of winter and take kids away from their parents when I deem them to have been sufficiently dysfunctional as parents. That was what we're actually talking about. Where is that line? There has to be a line. For $26 billion to flow, it's not just make it up and do whatever you want. There is a whole raft of very normal, well-established set of administrative practices that have to be upheld in order for the rule of law, in order for transparency and accountability, all these nice things that we uphold to be fulfilled, and yet that has to map onto anthropology. That has to map onto an array of very different vernacular orders That have very different understandings of what counts as a question and what counts as an answer and where those two different worlds try and talk to each other there can be amazing moments when there's an et-like moment when poof they finally connect with each other and a conversation of substance actually happens and the reconciliation happens moment often just momentarily but the work that has to be done by a group of people to get to a, a situation where that kind of fundamentally ontologically dissonant worlds can talk to each other is the world I think that humans have always struggled with. But in the age of development, that is what we're doing essentially all the time. We have a vernacular knowledge that we are, we claim to try and engage with, but we don't really know how to do that very well. The World Bank has its own vernacular, <laughs> vernacular order, but that vernacular order is very much in sim- a manifestation of official order. We talk to each other, we manage our money, we enact and justify what we do on, <clears throat> on the basis of a well-established set of international le- law legal principles. But how do those, and any, any government does that, the British government does the same thing, rightly. We think that's, that's progress when, when, it's, when it's run, when the distribution of public money is, is managed that way in australia at least where i come from the first nations people the aboriginal community have this have this wonderful word for official order and it's the title of a fantastic book by mark moran and that those particular that expression is serious white fella stuff Ah, oh, i love that phrase right? serious white fella so it's not white fella as in white guys it's people who aren't like us who come in and are very earnest who try really, really hard to understand their world, who give us surveys with the best of intentions, trying to get hard evidence to be able to provide rigorous results so that they can inform public policy, but who fundamentally have no freaking idea what they're really doing. They cannot understand that serious white fellow stuff. It's a beautiful vernacular rendering of what we're doing now, in fact. <laughs> we're, we're in a different order. Right now, we're in academic order. We're all talking to each other and I see a few nodding heads because you understand and comprehend what I'm saying because you have had about 16 or 17,000 hours of education that enables you to hear what I'm saying in very particular ways and make sense of it and think, yeah, that's okay. Having this conversation at a bar down the street, how did that go? How long do you think I'd be able to hold an audience and attention if I started speaking like this in a bar in two hours' time down in the middle of Bath? Not too long. Right? Not because the people aren't smart, not because they might think I'm a jerk, just I'm speaking an entirely different way that makes sense in this mo- in this modality of conversation. That is a, not even a foreign language, it's just a completely alien form of communication. So I've just articulated in effect four different modalities of communication. I'm taking the vernacular order and then the official order, which is sort of the professionalized space in which I think much of development happen, happens. When you work where I do, in the research department of the World Bank, you're in, a, you're in an academic order, you're in, a, in an academic order, especially when it's run by economists, has a very particular understanding of what counts as a question and what counts as an answer. All right? And that's very different <laughs> from what counts as a question and what counts as an answer when you're working in Aboriginal communities or pretty much any other country or community in the world. They, or everyone has their own particular vernacular order, way of making sense of all this stuff. So I think a lot of that. Then that's, that, that's so the point of this meeting that I was at in Canada. This is the rare moment. This is the, in my entire career. This is the first time I've been in a meeting where that level of money, 26 billion dollars, which has to be spent by the way, by the and allocated by the end of uh, end of December. So there's a six month clock tick, ticking in the background while we all have these discussions. It disappears after six months if we haven't got our act together, right? So everybody's conscious of that. And then the vernacular order and the official order try and talk to each other to try and figure out how the heck we're going to turn 26 billion dollars into a world in which it can reconcile Canadian national administrative law and the worlds. Of the vernacular order of the First Nations communities, we had a three hour discussion on one word neglect three hours one word neglect what does that mean. Who gets to decide what counts as neglect what counts as a question and what counts as an answer when we have to everything about what we're talking about flows do you get 26 billion dollars when sufficient neglect is apparent who gets to measure that who gets to decide whether the 26 billion has been spent in ways that has reduced neglect right all of that was on the table there isn't a rigorous answer to that social workers don't have the rigorous answer they never would and could I say that because my partner, my mother was a social worker, my older sister was a social worker. They lived this kind of work every day. Um, And I think that's the sensibility we need to bring to bear on much more in the changing face of international development in the 21st century, where these kinds of challenges are on the table. My second example, Congo, fantastic new series that the New York Times has just set up called Headway, which is all about trying to take readers to different countries in the world, rich and poor alike, to try and engage them with the most wrenchingly difficult policy problems ranging from recovery from cyclones and hurricanes to homelessness and the one i'm going to talk to you about now in congo recently a group of scientists discovered a peat bog a peat bog with quote 26 uh, 25 years of u.s car emissions uh stored within it basically saying was well, explicitly saying if that 20, if that carbon bomb goes off you ain't seen nothing in terms of what the climate change effects are really going to go to be. Right. So, so this is a, a a group of Western scientists who've gone into someone else's world, done what scientists do, declared this to be a peat bog with uh, 26 years worth of US carbon emissions waiting to go off, and now have to tell a group of villagers who have contested jurisdiction over this particular peat bog because all they have to uh, claim and counterclaim about who actually even owns this and whether ownership itself is even a, the right term to use here are uh, contested maps written in the 1930s around around which jurisdiction is trying to be upheld around who has ownership meanwhile certain other governments of the world are paying loggers a thousand dollars a day to try and chop down trees because the, the trees are embodiments of all sorts of uh, long standing wood, they're virgin forests they've never been touched before, so they contain very rare woods that certain countries are willing to pay enormous sums for. So are these villagers supposed to say ah, I'm going to turn down $1,000 a day in income, because you've told me that something called climate change is going to happen and that. Uh, something called co- uh, something called a carbon bomb is going to go off if I start chopping down my trees, what should I, what should I do it, why should I not do that. Well, the countervailing argument that someone comes up with is says well actually our ancestors reside in the peat bog so. We don't want to piss off the we don't want to piss off the ancestors so maybe we need to be taking the, the whole uh ancestor worship thing much more seriously and trying to engage with that wow right <laughs> there's political there's official order vernacular order an academic order trying to have a really awkward conversation who gets to decide what this thing called climate change is who gets to, how do you explain that to people who don't even have a word in their language for something called carbon Right. How do you explain how the emissions of the world that they have, have contributed nothing to are now going to be something they have to bear the responsibility for managing? What does that even mean? Right? least after the end of the interview, they have this nice little rye exchange where the villagers suddenly sort of click about what it is everybody's talking about. And they say to the journalists and they <laughs> write this in their own report didn't you guys just probably put more carbon into the air by flying here first class to come and talk to us than we'll ever produce <laughs> right so there's of there's, there's bizarro hypocrisies flying everywhere in this conversation and the one guy it turns out who can mediate across this space is a congolese researcher who's part of the team that's come in from a western university as part of the team he can speak all three of the local languages in this part of congo can articulate perfectly uh, in three paragraphs, what the climate change is all about in English, and be very compelling as an, as a interlocutor in this kind of space. But precisely, of course, this guy can do both of those things. He's regarded with suspicion by each side. When he's speaking English to these guys, is he just dissing on us and just uh, you know making making fools of us? And while he looks very official and sophisticated, talking English to all these fellow scientists, and when the scientists hear him speaking all these other languages, he's, is he trying to appease? You know, is he just trying to? Be friendly with all of these guys who's actually selling us out and he's going to make sure that they get a better deal and he's going to he's going to end up being better off because of that suddenly the very act of being a mediator itself complicates your role because you're regarded, not with welcomed optimism by both sides, but with deep suspicion. By each side. That's a, just a beautiful case, I think, of clashing orders, existential pressure facing all these different groups, but existential pressure that's completely different for all the different actors. One is trying to make a claim about the awful things that will happen to the planet in the next 20 years if the peat bog is adjusted. Other groups are really worried about the ancestors that are going to get really angry if uh, if we start messing with the peat bog and other groups wondering why they have to give up a thousand dollars in income a day to solve a problem that they don't even understand. Right. <laughs> What multilateral organization can solve that problem? Not too many, but they need to at least be aware that that is the world we live in now, where this kind, those are extreme examples, perhaps, but these conversations that are now happening around the world, where just very different orders are being required to talk to each other, vernacular order, official order, academic order, and then popular order, the way in which all of this then gets conveyed in everything from uh, Bollywood and Hollywood movies, through to novels, through to magazines and through to social media and everywhere else very different orders of communication trying to enact with each other what does that all suggest I think it needs that we have to really think a lot of our ideas of what it means to be a development expert I have enough gray hair now to have that dubious title imposed upon me (laughs) Uh, you invite me here in some respects to speak to you because I am imputed to be a development expert of one kind or another at least when when I teach this stuff and when I've been Fortunate to teach, co-teach at least just one class on development ethics a, with a colleague at Princeton. What we've, what I've sort of come up with, and what the book itself concludes with, uh, is really trying to think about different, fundamentally different kinds of expertise. One of which fills space, an expertise that justifies all your higher education, makes you feel very smart, will pay you lots of money, which you're very happy to tell about to people when you're sitting next to them on a plane. The kind that uh, counterfactually can make you believe that but for your presence, this would have gone a very different way and probably ended disastrously. Geez, right? we love being in that space. Right? The filler of the space just makes you feel really, really good about yourself. You feel you've contributed to the world. Your actions have been decisive. Uh, but for you, things might have ended up very, very differently. And let me if I'm sounding slightly sardonic when I say that I don't mean to really. <laughs> There are a heck of a lot of problems in the world for which that's exactly the kind of expertise you need uh, if, and if your child was on death's door and there was one expert in the world who could save that your child's life by applying that particular expertise you would do whatever it took to get that expertise motion. right so I'm, I'm i'm not downplaying expertise at all and i say that as a father who has lost a child uh, but there's not that other kinds of expertise there is expertise that creates and protects space the kind of space that was created and protected for that conversation we had in Canada right that wasn't experts piling in trying to show how smart they were trying to show that their rigorous data was providing evidence for why we should take one course of action of another It wasn't the evidence as such as we traditionally would understand that at least in, in when economics alone seems to have so much power over that space Very different kind of expertise being rendered in that moment. And restraint, humility, listening to people, staying in a hard conversation when it's hard and it gets harder and it gets harder and then more political pressure and financial pressure is born to bear it you keep being in that space. That is a very different kind of expertise, I think. Can it be curated and cultivated? I think so, a little bit. (laughs) But it's not the kind of stuff that's gonna pay you a lot of money. It's not stuff that you're going to be able to uh, tell people about at a cocktail party or when you're meeting a stranger on a plane. Uh, it's not going to sound that impressive when you go to your high school reunion uh, in ways that the fillers of the space will sound. It's uh, just a very different kind of modality, but for the kinds of pressures that we are facing these days, that I think is what we need to be seeing more of. We need to be teaching more of that, at least as a principle that we need to hold. The final one is the is all the drama then. Surrounding the, the, the Congo peat bog debate, right? That was partly a story, I want to think, of of protecting and uh, creating and protecting space, but it was also about connecting, trying to figure out how to bring these very different modalities of a scientific understanding of the peat bog with a vernacular understanding as the reservoir of ancient ancestors and, and venerable people of the past who need to be honored uh, with imperatives for protecting the whole climate of the world. <laughs> How do you you connect across those very different modalities and not end up, uh, as our Congolese researcher does, feeling like he's neither here nor there? He's regarded with suspicion by a side precisely because he can do this, the rare person who can do the connecting work across those very different orderings, these very different ways of making sense of the world. Those are the kinds of things that I think... (laughs) international organizations are inherently going to struggle with because they are almost by definition um, embodiments of official order they have a particular way of thinking about what counts as a question and what counts as an answer and on a good day that's what enables large-scale activity to happen in ways that our ancestors from many years ago themselves could not have apprehended or comprehended that we would be able to build out insurance systems and financial systems that can Uh, insulate us against many of the uh, awful things that can and do happen in the world that the bigger really big challenge is how we help these organizations themselves to see themselves not as the fillers of other people's spaces how they use their power to create and protect space for these difficult conversations and are willing to do it for long periods of time because that's the only way you can do it and to be able to engage with uh, academic and for academics themselves to see that they're what they do is a very particular ordering it's, if you master that world you get nice publications you are producing legible products that are enable you to be promoted to function very happily in that particular world but it's not an official order it's not it's, if it's if it is anything it's a vernacular order of its own kind but it has to engage so often in very different ways with vernacular orders that don't read regression tables who don't uh read books (laughs) who don't um who don't apprehend the world in that way at all that's not how refugees make sense of their world by consulting the data before they decide where they're going to go in the world um they don't think i think they have much time for people that show up in their world asking them on a scale of one to ten how awful their life has been over the last week or so right that counts as data in certain people's minds i'm pretty sure it's not how refugees make sense of their world and want to talk about their world and indeed in one of the Papers that was part of this uh, new new mediums better messages uh, volume, it's a really interesting case from Afghanistan where refugees for once in their life were given their modality for telling us about their world, what is it like to be to be a refugee, not because we've surveyed you to death or held a zillion different focus groups. But when you just tell us in your own terms, you use a vernacular order to tell us about what your life is like. And would be our problem to try and apprehend your vernacular world, not the other way around. Not the serious whitefellow world, uh, which is so alien. And it's magical. It's the, the, the story that they wrote of a play they ended up writing about telling the story of their journey in an in a almost made up in real time play that they were able to do way better than any of us could ever do if we had to improvise a play on the, on the spur of the moment. Let me conclude by uh, just telling taking you what I think a country can look like when it does this. And it pains me as an Australian to say this, but it's from New Zealand. Uh, I happened to be in New Zealand a week after the tragedy that unfolded there in 2019, when uh, 50 of their Muslim citizens were slaughtered by an Australian, as it turned out. Uh, And obviously, my trip had been planned long in advance. But I had this sort of premonition that before I went to this country, I was gonna see a very different way of engaging with violence, with retribution, with grief, uh, and with uh, dealing with a wrenchingly hard problem. And I live in the United States, so I know full well how the United States deals with uh, acts of terrorism committed against itself. I don't know how it would have dealt and did deal with Saudis and others that showed up on their doorstep uh, a week or two after uh, after 9-11 and other types of episodes. So I go to New Zealand thinking it's going to be pretty apparent the moment I open my passport and my mouth uh, where I am from to New Zealand customs officials. Am I going to just get quietly escorted off to another room to have a little quiet conversation <laughs> about what I've been up to in the last few months or so? How's, how am I actually going to be treated as a member of a group that just slaughtered uh, 50 of their people? Hello, Michael. Welcome to New Zealand. It's great to have you here. Handed my passport back and i walk through. <laughs> I broke down and cried (laughs) wow how do you build a world like that where you don't demonize other people from other countries where if someone turns up in that world representing a group that's just done the most atrocious thing almost possible to your own people and doesn't treat you like that on the one week anniversary of that event a Muslim call to prayer was broadcast over national state run television can you imagine how many countries in the world would be okay with having that be done on their on their, on their their official uh, national the BBC doing the equivalent thing. Maybe they would, but the power and the magic of all this in New Zealand wasn't, they weren't making a big deal of this. They weren't saying, watch world, we're gonna show you how to be great in the face of all this diversity and all this challenge and all this grief that we're having to return. The, when they, whenever I asked them, it's like, does anybody worry about this? They just looked at me like I had three heads and said, sort of, why wouldn't you do this when you're trying to help people mourn? <laughs> That was the response. Roughly a third of the women, without any big national request or imperative, were hijabs to work that day in solidarity with their Muslim sisters who were going through enormous amounts of grief. How do you do how do you build a world in which you do that? Well, I think I I'm not going to produce some big proof of all that, but I think it's in part because New Zealanders, for 150 years, every decade, have had time to have hard conversations around how the European settler groups will get on. With the native Maori populations 150 years of every decade revisiting that treaty trying to have hard conversations all the time about what needs to be done who needs to give who needs to take how are we going to find a pathway how can vernacular order and official order and multiple vernacular orders talk to each other in ways that in a protected and authorized space for having that kind of conversation you can't invent that you can have policy implications of all of that kind of work it's a practice that's curated and cultivated over long periods of time. And I worry <laughs> that that's true in the sense that uh, you can't just invent that kind of sensibility. You can't invent those social practices overnight. Someone somehow somewhere has to figure out how to be brave enough to initiate those kind of spaces and those kinds of vernacular exchanges so that all this heavy work, all this hard conversations can do what only hard conversations can do. That's the changing face of international development, as I wish it would be. I've, I have uh, no illusions. That's probably not where it's going to go, but that's where it should go. And I'd like to think in its own way that those of us in the academic vernacular order have a non-trivial role to play. And at least being able to talk to each other and, and others about this precisely because the actual scholarship of this issues suggests that these other kinds of issues we've always, as humans, wrestled with, will continue to do so. And the development itself only amplifies all of the imperatives for that. Thanks very much. So
1: thank you, Michael. Um, uh, and we have half an hour for questions, and more time afterwards uh, to continue with informal questions in different vernaculars. Um, and it's customary at this moment for there to be an awkward pause uh, while we all try and digest what we've just heard, and. Um, Actually, I think it's quite good to have a pause and it? it doesn't have to be awkward. So um, uh, let's have a few minutes just to reflect a bit. And then when anybody's ready, they can stick their hand up and they can uh, offer a comment uh, or make a, uh, ask, ask Michael a question. And at some stage, we will also um, bring in people from uh, uh, online. To uh, see what I don't know how many.
2: What do we want to start with? Do we have any? Do we have any any
1: questions? Let's let's (laughs) let's just see how long the pause lasts, and then when anybody's ready, let's
2: let's see if we uh. can have a hard conversation. Let's see how good we are. Uh, um, Yes. Yes.
1: Please pass the
3: microphone. Thank you so much, Michael. It was really um, fascinating and thought provoking. I, I noted. Yes, I'm Jason Hart. I'm in the department along with James and colleagues. Um, I wrote down the culture as you were talking about a number of encounters, you know, from Canada, Congo, New Zealand, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that we maybe we can talk about the culture of the encounter, mm-hmm. where which is typically one-off, short-term maybe you learn a little bit, maybe, probably just state your position, state your order, and then you'll go away again. And, you know, I remember many years ago hearing about the five and five uh, approach, which people in international development loved it. And five and five is five days in a five-star hotel, and everybody's happy. Um, and how do we move from that to what I think you're also gesturing towards, which is an ongoing dialogue. I mean, every decade for however many. Mm-hmm years um and in canada perhaps as well you're revisiting going back building building that dialogue painstakingly and really why is international development so bad at that that, that? what what would it cost international development what would it cost the world bank to actually start moving away from the culture of the one-off encounter the five and five and all that nonsense Mm. and actually start doing what you're talking about which is an encounter which is dialogic, which is ongoing, where you actually build trust in relationships. I mean, now in our research funding, we're all encouraged to have partnerships. All, everybody, all the funders want partnerships, but they're not paying for the partnerships. They're not paying the time that it takes to build genuine relationships. Mm-hmm. They want something that looks like partnership <laughs> in terms of international development. So, So, you know, what's at stake here? What will it take for us to move from one type of encounter to the other?
2: Yeah,
4: take a you. yeah that's a great question thank you thank you yeah um ollie henman i'm uh, i've run a small uh, ngo called action for sustainable development we work a lot on the sdgs with the un so i appreciate what you said about the un at the beginning um but uh, my question was more about this cultural uh, dissonance as you as you described it and i think it's a really uh, interesting and, and valuable approach that you've taken to try to unpick What are those barriers? I mean, we work a lot with very small community organizations looking at different elements of sustainable development and the SDGs and how they themselves can prove their impact to donors. And as you say, I mean, some of the big donors like the FCDO or USAID at the moment are saying they want to localize their funds. Um, I think they have a target now of 60% of their funds going to local groups by 2030. But when I've spoken to the FCDO, they said, oh, well, that means that we'll talk to the government of the country and ask them who who to work with at the local level. And you sort of think, well, in some countries, those governments are not going to be trusted by the very people that need that support. You know, um, they were talking about Ethiopia and they were saying, you know, it'd be up to the Ethiopian government to decide who then is local. Um, And so I think, you know, there's a question, I guess, how do we genuinely shift that needle in terms of funding And, and World Bank being another big donor that can play that role? How do you genuinely listen to those voices and actually get the funds down to those local levels and find different ways for them to prove their impact? Because as you said, they're not going to have the time or the expertise to fill in lengthy log frames and and kind of the sort of reporting that we're used to. So, I mean, we've been thinking, for example, can you use video as a way to show impact to people just tell their story to video? You know, Are there other ways that we can, as you said, bring that sort of more vernacular way into the reporting cycle?
2: One more question. Then. Yeah. yeah, this is good. These
0: are great questions. Thank you. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Judith Randall. I'm a visiting fellow here and uh, also an even smaller organization <laughs> than Ollie's uh, public good. We do most of our work in Ireland, and it's relevant to what I was going to say. So it was extremely interesting. You used a phrase at the beginning about how do we create or what sort of civic solidarities do we need? I would be very interested to to hear more about that. But also what struck me was that this isn't a. a discussion about development it's a discussion about every country so you mentioned the Congo peat bog exactly the same discussion is going on in Ireland about turf cutting you mentioned very interesting the ideological diversity where are people trained where have they come from what have they been informed by well look at PPE and Oxford and our current society here in the UK (laughs) really really relevant things which it's good to discuss not in a development north south framework but as citizens, governments, states, global global issues requiring, as you say, global solutions, so very stimulating, thank you.
2: Yeah, oh, great, thank you. I will, I'll make a, a go at those different,
5: those different issues. Um, if I knew the answers, that's, we'd already have books on it. <laughs>
2: Which we don't, but I I think you're right, absolutely, to say that that these, I use those examples just because they're graphic and they're, I hope, uh, easy for people to uh, engage with, but versions of that are everywhere. And that's why it's, that's why developments is still happening everywhere and why it still elicits these uh, very hard conversations in rich and poor countries alike, a lot, I think, manifest in the kinds of uh, conversations that I... forms of ordering that i that i that i outlined but i think the when i want to get when i want to depress myself (laughs) i uh it's that it is this time question how long it takes humans to develop or systems more particularly to enter to create a a, a normative set of practices this is what it's going to take to solve this kind of problem the, the, I think the challenge for an organization at the World Bank is that there are certain kinds of problems that are amenable to, if not the five five strategy, at least the five 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 strategy, which might be five years, <laughs> uh, five days and, and, and five stars. But um, there is, I think there are, that if you look at central banking you know, and that, that, that kind of space has sufficiently professionalized over time, such that. Skills are transferable-ish <laughs> across different spaces because the central bank is doing similar enough work in different countries. If the problem is with the World Bank is when you have that and infrastructure where engineering building a bridge is kind of building a bridge is kind of building a bridge, then it's very easy to get in for when that when when big infrastructure, when energy production and macro finance become the sort of dominant epistemological orders in a a big organization people that heard a a version of what I'm saying is poetry right it's cute it's interesting people might like to talk about this after work sometime (laughs) can the organization itself incorporate these really really different ways of engaging with very different kinds of problems I inherently can't if I was right about what I was saying or Jim Scott was saying about about um seeing like a state problem the imperative of a big organization is fundamentally to think in terms of legibility and thin simplifications all these nice concepts that that jim articulates where the whole point is to turn all of this diversity all this heterogeneity into something that can be log framed can be excel spreadsheeted can be managed can be predicted can be apprehended can be evaluated and assessed and and interpreted in ways that is is legible and, and, and legitimate for the dominant stakeholders <laughs> all the stuff that might be required uh is just really di- is is a is an entirely different skill set now does that then require the kinds of organizations that you guys work in where you would have both the mandate and the reach and the staying power potentially to do that kind of work in the book i open the opening chapter is called the three developments and i distinguish between national development the work that nations do now to try and have national development plans and that would exist if every ngo and every multilateral agent shut down tomorrow governments would still be doing that work in development big development agencies exist by mandate to work with those particular governments to help them do what they do, so the challenge with all this uh, decentralization all of all of these other uh, imperatives to try and. get find the appropriate space at which the funds should be sent the, legally the banks are inherently struggle with that the lawyers will be up in arms about that saying our mandate is, is but the very title of a multilateral organization is it's working with governments, that sovereign national governments. That's what it exists to do. Uh, now we have had some other situations where in big countries like India, for example, they've been able to figure out how to do deals with the states of India, which if they were ever to secede, many of them would be in the top 10 countries in the world <laughs> by population size anyway. Um, so there's lots of legal work that would have to be done in this in the prosaic space that i articulated in the first part of my presentation where you would have to change the hardware <laughs> before you change the software with all the stuff i'm talking about how would you create a, a legal ordering that would enable um, levels of funding to be directed at the at the levels at which it would be deemed to be most optimal the, the world bank congenitally can't do that because it's not what's Neither can or maybe different can maybe it's got clauses in its own constitution that enable it to to lend at low, or lower to give at lower levels of, of, of political ordering that I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that certain governments, like the Swedes and the Germans and their development agencies have very explicit co- commitments. Uh, to for every foreign or, or any one of their own citizens that they bring into a country, they have to hire a, a local counterpart. So that, that, that vernacular and official ordering is baked in, in the way in which they function. Uh, they have very ex- explicit policies for keeping people there long enough uh, linguistically and in other ways to do the kind of conversing that needs to, to be able to happen. Uh, my own country is probably the worst offender in that space, It explicitly has a very generalist philosophy to how it recruits its civil servants the the whole point is to be able to get people to function well enough in eight different ministries over the course of their career because that's deemed to be optimal by way of uh, managing the the financing even if it means that that's the end of uh because that actually requires a very particular skill set that turns out to be not that transferable to any other parts of the government we've got a world in which in 2004 i think we had 13 governments in the world that had ministerial portfolio level ministries of, of development now we have three <laughs> right so it's not just this is not just a multilateral agency issue this is a bilateral uh national oecd country problem as well where developments just increasingly now as it once was an instrument of a shameless an explicit instrument of foreign policy rather than its own, its own moral space, or at least its own, what's the right word? Aspirational space, performative space from a more cynical point of view about how it uh, cares about humanity and wants to do development for its own, its own purposes. But I think in the World Bank, we have lots that we inherently struggle with that. We, have a, we used to have, a, and still do, have a three, five, seven rule. Optima, minimally for three, optimally for five, maximally for seven the years that you would spend in a country in which you were working. And again, if you're a macro finance guy or an engineer, I think that's entirely sensible. If you're an environmental biologist and you're an anthropologist, you're just getting warmed up after seven years. You're just beginning to have an apprehension of what you're dealing with, and your skill set when you're when you're an, an, a biologist of of the fauna and flora and rice patterns and the growing seasons and all that just that's not trans. I mean, it's transferable at a certain level of abstraction. The actual level at which you'd be engaging with vernacular orders, that's not transferable. So it, just, it needs to have a better theory. That sounds really academic ordering, <laughs> but it needs to have a better theory of what development is and does and then say what why I want to end with where I started, which what is the development problem for which we need development fit for purpose? And if it's the kind of problems that I've just been articulating and the kinds of questions that you guys have rightly posed to, to, to me and to it by extension to everybody, we've got to reconfigure the hardware to get to the world in which then the software is able to do what it needs to do, given the the qualitatively different kinds of problems that development now is engaging with in ways it wasn't when it was first built. It was when these organizations were designed explicitly in the high modern moment to be able to do thin simplification work, to build as many bridges, roads and ports and to stabilize currencies as needed to be done. Now allow the sustainable development goals, anything and everything is on the agenda, in which case by extension, we need a much more pluralistic methodological space, theoretical space and practic- and practice space Something like the kinds of different forms of expertise that I was articulating.
1: Thank you, Michael. We we we've silenced our online audience. Oh, that's um, <laughs> but, but testimony to the power of being to, in person. Um, I'm conscious that this group, at least, um, spans um, a, a fair amount of generational diversity. We have, you know, we have some old salts like me in the audience, but we have quite a few younger people and it would be really nice to hear from some of you as well. I know Michael can be a bit overwhelming, but um, you know, the issues he's talking about are issues that I hope resonate with why you came to study at the University of Bath. So um, if some of you've got that, and we are also talking about courage here, aren't we? Um, To overcome barriers. So um, (laughs) questions, doesn't matter how, um, you know, um, what they are, um, would be very welcome. Um, so while you kind of uh, think about that, um, I have one question right at the back. Um, from a, no, no longer a student, but- <laughs> we're, all, we're always students. Not that
5: long ago. And then you can
1: pass the mic to somebody currently
4: Uh, My name is Andrew Johnston. I was a student here until recently. Uh, I'm actually a retired soldier um, who's worked in Africa a fair amount. Um, I was interested in your soundness, supportability and implementability. Uh, but from what I've heard so far, I think uh, there's real concerns about the supportability and implementability of, of what you've actually been doing. Um, could you say a bit more about where you see this going and how uh, we can actually generate the the support that is needed in order to make the sorts of changes that you're actually talking about?
2: Yep.
5: Okay, quick questions again. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm Hika Chatterjee, I'm a lecturer um, at the department uh, and I've just recently joined. Um, so I found that very provocative. Thank you, Michael. Um, I have a question that uh, tries to, you know, ask you and uh, uh, really provoke you to think uh, to bring politics into some of the ways in which you have uh, discussed the role of the institution. So particularly, I was quite struck when you talked about uh, data and transparency. Um, and you said that, you know, there was a case for thinking about how perhaps uh, there's a need for secrecy in certain on certain issues and, and particularly in working with, you know, when, when institutions are working with certain states. Um, so there I was just wondering if you could just perhaps pass out some of the conditions where this would be desirable, uh, but also uh, accounted to that would be that situations where it would not be desirable. So I can see multiple authoritarian populist states today who would quite like the idea of secrecy. Um, and I can see how transparency, uh, the, the, the need for transparency perhaps might be uh, muted when you're thinking about stakeholders, such as international institutions, de- development agencies and states as primary stakeholders. But there are also other stakeholders like civil society organizations and the more ground level politics that really uh, build on some of the data that is made available to make claims. Uh, that are realized primarily through social movements and politics on the ground. So, how would uh, such an agenda, you know, s- either serve the purpose or perhaps might uh, advance the purpose of populist states today? Mm-hmm. Good. Okay, I'll go
2: go backwards again and, and go backwards in the sense of answering them in the reverse order. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I I I, I guess I was just. Uh, thinking out, actually most countries probably would deal with it would by, by treating categories of people as the ones that had done the enacting. The, what I didn't say is what, an, another distinctive characteristic of how New Zealand is with this. Unlike America, which where the, the perpetrator would be named, there would be a deep sort of pop psychology sort of analysis of the awful life that they'd lived and why they've been socialized in some camp somewhere, da 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 da. You know, the, the New Zealand press and government never mentioned the name of the individual ever and <laughs> didn't mention they could infer, everyone can infer pretty much obviously by the crime itself what the grievance of this individual was but what those people often most want is attention they want to they want their cause to be amplified and they're willing to kill people in order for, to attract that kind of attention so there's as a matter of strategy contra so many I know, other Uh, governments in the world (laughs) their whole explicit strategies don't give them what they want what they mostly want they want attention deny them the attention so and i think that then filters down to the the everyday state where the state actually intersects with people like me foreigners visiting a country (laughs) where then i don't get read as i don't get seen as the as a member of this group i'm i'm assessed as just another person arriving in the country (laughs) Um, but to That that doing that kind of work is then partly a a policy response that that the New Zealand government does. But why can't other countries do something like that more routinely? Why can't they say that? Well, the whole reason so much of the awfulness that things happen in the world is because people are trying to bring attention to their cause. So deny them that attention. Maybe that will not only have the instrumental effect of causing um, sending very powerful signals that if you do awful things you and you seek attention you're not going to get it, but also by virtue of there's an extension of that make it less likely that those kind of incidences will happen in the first place so. Uh, so, in that sense, uh, maybe I was I was I was a beneficiary what you're saying is that maybe I was a beneficiary of a higher order policy decision that made that possible and if that's true, all the more reason to be seeing that as, a, as an example of the ways in which we can actually start to. Uh, make the conversations themselves pass a little easier right from the get-go by not inherently creating uh, or invoking or weaponizing stereotypes about individuals who happen to be members of groups that at a particular moment were deemed to have done uh, at a particularly outrageous form of, of criminal activity. Uh, on the other ones on the other questions, uh, let me see. <laughs> Uh, examples of things that, that that I've tried to do. I I, I this is you know, I don't want to sound presumptuous and and pompous when I when I say what I'm going to say, but uh, I want to think that I apply those same criteria to myself and to the teams of people that I work with. Um, over the course of my time in the bank, the two most high-profile things that I've done. Uh, one was uh, uh, trying to engage with the whole question of of local justice reform and to engage quite proactively by enacting a written kind of research agenda and by extension a whole different kind of uh, let's call it a policy response agenda around this question of how vernacular order the most consequential of which i think is the legal orderings that people have for themselves about how they manage property, how they engage in contractual engagements with other people of one form or another, uh, and trying to look at that research space in, in an overtly contradistinction to how rule of law reform, is, which is how official order talks about these things, would engage with it, which was quintessentially cut and paste, adopt best practices from other countries, regard vernacular order as a problem to be solved rather than seeing itself as a problem to be solved. <laughs> and so for more than a decade, we were able to s- secure funds in, and work in over a dozen countries where we were committing people to live and work in those countries for years at a time to be able to earn the credibility to be able to engage with uh, local justice leaders and, and official judicial representatives as well to try and figure out what would a very different kind of analytic space and a policy dialogue space look like for engaging in this practice that in official order is called building the rule of law. The one field I think in which there is unilateral left-right and north-south consensus on what as as a development goal. And yet it's hard to name I think a sector in which there is less accomplishment to be shown after 60 plus years of working on this kind of issue. So treating it in one sense as a scholarly issue, how is it that people can agree on this one thing, north, south, left, right, for so long and yet have so little to sow for it? That's, an, that's a scholarly nerdy kind of question. But if you've provided a good answer to that, what's your sound, supportable, implementable alternative? Doing everything in the opposite way <laughs> into which we usually do rule of law reform, which is to hire a legal consultant to come in and build you, for example, an anti-corruption law in Uganda, which uh, according to Global Integrity, an NGO in Washington that scorecards these kinds of things gets 99 out of 100. You cannot get a better anti-corruption law than what Uganda has. (laughs) Only for us to show up uh, with a different set of colleagues uh, a few years later, where the screaming headlines in a moment you couldn't make up uh, on the day we arrived was uh, 200 million shillings worth of UK aid canceled because of corruption scandal (laughs) so why 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 do we think that all the serious work around ending corruption is all turns on buying an anti-corruption law that we can procure we can hire an expert we can have it be deemed as a great success because hey global integrity deemed it to be scored 99 out of 100 that doesn't change anything (laughs) why can you get a brand new supreme court built in solomon islands for millions of dollars that is environmentally eco-friendly hired and worked on and built by local labor built with locally sourced materials uh, situated just so that it captures all the breezes coming in off the pacific ocean so it doesn't need to, to be air conditioned so it meets all the green criteria canberra loved this right development darling project built on time on budget no corruption scandals magnificent piece of architecture used four times a year and by the way the the jail that they send people to around the corner which was also built to Geneva uh, human rights standards uh, provides three nutritious meals a day the adequate cell size is is built to be in accordance with uh, international standards has eight people in it how do you get a world like that How do you get a world where that counts as justice reform and doesn't rattle anybody anywhere because it meets every ordered world criteria, (laughs) official order world criteria of what counts as success? What if you flip all of that and say, what is the justice problem for which we are actually trying to solve here? What kind of response would we need in order to do that? I wagered with my humble little team (laughs) that what we were embodying was the opposite of all that not to say that we didn't need serious legal lawyers doing real legal work but for this manifestation of this development problem in this particular country under these kinds of constraints facing these kind of pressures this is what we needed all of that in turn fed the initiative that uh, james mentioned before the building state capability program that when i helped set up uh, at the Kennedy School and which uh, with with Lant Pritchard and Matt Andrews co-authored a a book uh, with that very title which was again a a desperate (laughs) our attempt to try and find a sound supportable implementable response to this big empirically verifiable challenge in the world where the government's abilities to implement their own key agendas as best we can measure these things is steadily declining for most countries around most poor countries around the world and indeed i would suggest many rich countries as well all of our discussion in the when the academic space meets the official order space is around this thing called policy and my policy is better than your policy and we should do more of this and less of that there are policy implications that follow from our research papers uh, which are usually just two pages of broad sweeping general things and I think, well let's take this implementation aspect much more seriously let's think about that. How many books actually have been written with the word implementation or variants thereof in the title? Less than 10. (laughs) How many books have been written on policy? A zillion, right? So why can't we reassign some of our brain space to be working on these implementation dynamics? And that in turn, these questions where you can bring in a lot of the questions around politics. Why does so much of the money that's allocated to education in a country like Papua New Guinea not reach where it's supposed to go? Why does the tax revenue that's collected in so many different places never end up in the treasury? All sorts of really interesting fiscal ethnographies, all sorts of interesting analytical work can be done to follow the money when you are actually working and living and and have the capacity and credibility to be able to engage with the reforms of those institutions on the basis of having a much richer knowledge of what they actually entail. So the whole problem-driven iterative adaptation framework, which I'm one of the co, articulators and enactors of is now uh, by authorization and explicit requests from the Cambodian government, indeed where I was two weeks ago uh, and and have been doing for the last two and a half years, has been trying to engage in a wholesale modernization of the Cambodian public service uh, and trying to encourage and build in a whole set of skills and sensibilities about how we re-engage with these questions of implementation and see public servants themselves especially ones that are coming out of a historically deeply autocratic regime to not see their jobs as just being good soldiers, as being rules, followers to the the letter, uh, only doing exactly the minimum required in order to be able to be promoted and all the rest and see themselves as much more entrepreneurial in terms of how they think about their jobs as problem solvers, as innovators, as ones whose job it is as a public service to try and get a much richer engagement between themselves and their own citizens. So that particular program is, uh, I don't know how that's going to go, I, I don't, if I did, I would be working in a different kind of empirical space. I do a lot of what I do because I'm wagering, I'm wagering that I'm okay and articulating what I articulate, but I, if I, I'm hypocritical on the first order, if I don't in turn try and enact uh, supportable sound and implementable responses to this. and. Here here we are doing this kind of work in dozens of different countries now, especially in in the space of public financial management, independently reviewed and summarized in an IMF blog earlier this year. So these are physical institutionalized manifestations of what I like to think characterizes these different models of expertise that, that I talked about. Yeah, we need people that can fill space. We need technical people who know what they're doing when they're engaging with curriculum reform, for example uh but we need to have people who can create and protect space for all this really awkward difficult decision making that needs to happen and on good day organizations like the world bank actually have the capacity to do that because people attend when we call meetings for all sorts of good and not so good reasons but the convening power of multilateralizations in that space is, is really untapped i think now not just in the five five sort of idea that we'll just hold fancy meetings in nice hotels for a couple of days engaging with people in a long and substantive dialogue over, over the years that it takes to build those kinds of relationships. So, and I can talk to other things that uh, Namasi, an NGO that works in justice reform, that's a spinoff in effect of, of the work we did on local justice reform. The, the CEO of that is an alumni of our justice for the poor program. There's lots of little ways that at least we can see pretty big things happening or at least influencing at scale rather than operating at scale, as we like to, as we, as we like to think that's what i'm doing and i that's is that going to work i don't know i'm trying i'm trying to embody and 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 practice what i preach so to speak and like any other person who's tried to do anything differently in history it can end really badly and with great disappointment Um, but i think it's what i'm trying to do is grounded in some verifiable principles (laughs) and lessons from Uh, having engaged with these wrenching issues for many years of my life now and doing that by being faithful to the scholarship that suggests this is a a deeply long standing problem. Can we do better? Of course we can do better. What would that look like? I think it's going to look like something, a research agenda looks like what we did with justice for law that'll look like something we're doing with the building state capability program. Will those go on to be scaled even bigger? No idea. I, that's, I, I don't, it's not my job to do a lot of that. Someone else needs to do that work. Maybe someone sitting here. <laughs> you all have different, especially younger ones. You you have skills that I will never have, can't have, uh, that others will, might have. And if you can connect all of that skill and, and, and engage with these problems in a really different way, I think the multilateral space has way more flexibility than people give it credit for. And I like to think my own crazy career <laughs> kind of embodies that. Um, But if you can know how to be a good good bureaucratic entrepreneur, you too can, I think, look forward to a career where that becomes possible, even as, back to the earlier point, the politics really does shape that space, but they're rubber bars, they're not iron bars, and treat them as such, and you learn actually how to get okay at being able to fill space, connect space, and protect space. Thank you, Michael.
5: Did you want to... We're over time, but can we manage two more
1: questions? Well, yeah. Is that okay with the one? It's not that as well. Oh, but no. I uh, say so if anybody needs to leave, leave, but this is a, a rare opportunity. So let's take one at the back.
5: We should um, take an online person yeah. as well. <laughs> having one online. Yeah. All right. This right, is from Sean
2: hello sean ah great question cool good yep i, I can answer that one
3: <laughs> does this is,
2: this is what i want sean to be saying which you may have heard something different this is what i want to hear sean saying does the does the fact that so much of development work happens through this sort of quirky space we call projects, does that in itself reinforce this whole logic and power of of official order? <laughs> Is that kind of what you heard him saying? <laughs> okay, that's a great question because I I think uh, multilateral agencies came to exist with uh, a currency of projects, and that was the that's the quintessential fill the gap thing right <laughs> there is a problem in the world and uh, and we have a something that can fill that gap uh, Paul Romer wrote a very famous paper in 93 uh, called mm-hmm. on looking at these different kinds of gaps and there was there was a uh, an objects gap, there was the absence of trains, there was the absence of ports, there was the absence of road, the absence of this, and that was the filling of that gap, and then there, there were ideas gaps, there was the absence of human capital education essentially that we moved into services, a very simple paper in many respects, but as a, as a vernacular discussion of how development had functioning through the early 90s, and still to this day, the project is the primary modality part of what i've most enjoyed about the world bank is i've i wrote a whole book about a, a big massive big project in indonesia which i think was very transformative the project itself was transformative my book's a different question <laughs> um, but when i said at the beginning i said what's the development problem for which these institutions are a solution i didn't say what's what's the development project for which we need a solution so the projects are themselves part of potentially of, of a solution um, but if you're working in or on India, for example, uh, projects are a rounding error. Like in the multilateral space, in terms of what actually what volumes of money are being spent to do development work in the national development space versus the big development space. Um, so I, I most and the kind of work I'm doing, even with the um, with the Cambodian government, is that a project? Not, it's a, it's a resourcing envelope that enables us to do what we're doing. Uh, but it's not a project in the sense that it's you know, filling a gap of one kind or another. I guess it, one could interpret it that way. But I think the, the bigger point is that uh, for development agencies to do what they do, they need to be seen to be explicitly solving problems that governments themselves have articulated. And we have to have a much richer set of items on the menu than just this project or that project. That's That's been our diet. That's been the menu we've offered. Um, but I think most of the interesting work most interesting work that we do is actually in the space of reform of one kind or another or of knowledge sharing or knowledge generating all this all these data questions as well and that's I think those are the the spaces in which you need multilateral resourcing and uh, authorizing and mandating to be able to ensure that all of that then happens in in a coordinated kind of way but projects are uh, what we do with the building state capability program we don't engage with projects we don't offer projects uh, and we're doing very different kind of work in that space and i i think that's much more likely to be uh the future but also if we expand that space then we're just not captured by the by the still this still lingering imperative within, within the world bank at least to be able to projectize stuff that we do and once you once you once you think that's what your job is is to projectize social ideas economic ideas any other kind of ideas then i don't know then you come part of the problem seems to be not part of the solution get
1: the questions.
2: now mm-hmm. i'm going to give yes. a very academic answer which is read a recent paper i did <laughs> <laughs> called measuring what matters which engages Yeah. Oh, okay, I think our, our discourse has changed in the ways that you have just articulated. We no World Bank report now doesn't have genuflections in the in the direction of inclusion, uh, accountability, transparency, leave no one behind. Uh, countries should be in the driver's seat. All those little aphorisms that that, and you don't you, you yourself and everybody in this room can be very rightly sort of think that's just performative discourse it's sort of signaling that you care but when you when you actually look at the practice there's maybe it's a bit different so I think that both of those views can be true in the sense that um, eventually you want to think that people will (laughs) not just say these nice things actually structure these things and do them in a very different way and for my sins I've been just articulated a whole big new uh, social sustainability paper with um, five different colleagues at the World Bank Um, which tries to articulate at least some of the things you've heard me say tonight,
5: Uh,
2: then it's a wager after that, right? What are you actually going to do then to try and construct space for this kind of work to be done? The World Bank has what's called the environmental and social uh, framework, which is its attempts uh, only enacted in 2018 to do a much more serious analysis on the effects on Uh, minority groups from the kinds of big interventions it's tackling where this comes back to the politics the question earlier before though doing all these nice things doing all the stuff I'm even talking about it's just really time it's it's expensive it's hard to validate in in a short time time frame and it's um (laughs) it's just really difficult for organizations to actually do this kind of work when Other unnamed governments are running around the world saying we can offer you the same amount of money, a lower interest rate, without all these nice things that will keep the Nordic donors happy about inclusion and gender equality. You want a a, a bridge built by the next election where you can photograph yourself in front of a camera and and celebrate to your people what a great leader you are. You can go with the Rolls-Royce version of this at the World Bank, or you can go with us and get uh, get this built half the cost, half the time. And if you're the finance minister of Togo, which one are you going to go with? Right? I think that's another that's a big political economy question for all of all the nice things that we want to say and want to, all the accommodating and connecting and protecting that we want to do. It's time consuming and expensive and in a harsh world where a little bit of money has to go a long way, uh, how we solve all that remains to be seen so I think it's it's not there are so many competitive pressures pushing back against a lot of this that how you create a world in which. Uh, this thing doesn't just become exotic or super expensive or the Rolls-Royce version of it becomes normal and normative for how you think about these things that's a next generation star <laughs> um, sorry remind me quickly you'll, you'll get me back in the headspace for your question or data question right yeah um, I, I think that's a, that's a professional question as much as it's a strategic question in the sense that every government everywhere faces political pressure to manipulate its data. to tell thing. You could look at the way that unemployment data is collected in the United States, which is gets announced every month, for example. Enormous pressure on that on that number to be going in the right direction every year. And as you tick closer and closer to election, even more political pressure being born on that. Everybody knows that. <laughs> so there are all these layers of, of insulation. Even in the middle of the Trump administration, people who knew how the labor statistics were actually collected each month were saying, president can't touch that stuff even hit someone with, with that level of authority can't mess with the data we've set up institutional procedures to ensure that that work is what the professionals have deemed it to be. <laughs> right, you don't have that kind of professional ordering of of, of systematic knowledge data collection in any in other sectors, and in, certainly in many other countries so enormous amounts of work to be done in a world where we want to be evidence-based where we want to be able to invoke rigorous uh, methodologies and data to be supporting what we're doing all of that is in these in the implementation space for me <laughs> it's just really hard to collect and curate even gdp right the, the wonderful book poor numbers um on, on this question is just, uh, uh, just uh, looks at the gdp the one number that has been collected systematically about each country which has the most political economic standing in the whole world it determines where you sit on the on between Ireland at the top maybe you didn't know Ireland's now the richest country in the world um, and Somalia at the bottom at that turn we know that because of the GDP that number sit through the system of national accounts has been well administered and systematically enacted for uh, for, for decades and decades it's in the 1950s right there is not one number that is surrounded by more professional historical data gathering techniques and yet as that particular the author of of poor numbers shows when you look under the hood and actually look at how those numbers are produced in a bunch of different countries it's the quintessential sausage machine that you do not want to know how the sausage gets made because you'd never eat it if you knew where it came from right so that's that's itself a development problem for me to get a world in which the data is is accurate it's it's not messed with (laughs) it's a faithful rendering of, of the state of the world in a particular issue it's hard enough in the GDP number, the one thing we claim to care about and have done so for decades. Once you're getting, I mean, even in, even in inequality, I, I mentioned this poverty and shared prosperity report I did. How many countries in the world do you think we have really good inequality data of spaced over, say, eight or 10 years so that you can look at trends going in one direction. 63 of those 63, 43 come from the uh, from the, rich, the richest countries in the world. We have in, good inequality data at the World Bank, which has a mandate to do this kind of stuff, from 20 poor countries in the world. Right? So the gap, the space to be filled with, with a much richer, accurate, comprehensive knowledge on data, on basic stuff like poverty, inequality, GDP... <laughs> We haven't got those right yet, right? So all the other stuff we want to add on to that, like multidimensional poverty and recognizing that people don't just care about money. They care about their well-being. They care about their health. They care about their family. They care about being connected to their community. Those are things we would love to have, but we haven't got the ABCs of data right yet, as a recent World Development Report was really trying to stress. So again, generational challenge. You guys have got that all before you. Then no doubt there'll be some high-tech artificial machine learning blah 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 that'll be part of all of that be a serious methodologist and you will recognize there's a heck of a lot of performativity and all of that stuff too and getting good at what you do is always going to be really hard <laughs> in that space but to the extent data is not going anywhere it's going to be only ever more of it ensuring the quality and fidelity and accuracy of all that's going to be Yet another big development task that everybody has to undertake, but especially those countries that don't have budgets for it, don't have the uh, the infrastructure that is professional and hard and software that needed to do all that kind of work.